The reading this morning is taken from uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, It can be found on page 1165. That's 1165, 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, and beginning at verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you that we can sing those lyrics that we are not forsaken though the night is dark that the Saviour will stay by our side 
And Lord, as we labor on in weakness and rejoicing, we thank you that in our need, your power is displayed. Help us to see that again in your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have a seat. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of uh, megachurches uh, in, in other parts of the world where the so-called pastors, uh, they wear expensive clothes, they live in large houses and have uh, lavish lifestyles and have swimming pools in the houses, they, they travel by private jet to their uh, preaching commitments and yet somehow no one seems to think twice in their church about that. Have you heard of those sort of people? Maybe you hear of churches... Uh, uh, a bit more locally, perhaps, um, in this country, we can think of examples where the vicar runs off with uh, someone on the PCC. Uh, and no one questions it, uh, because at least they'll both be happy now. Or worse, actually, occasionally we may hear of churches where it emerges that the leader has been exploiting um, or abusing members of his own congregation, and many are afraid to speak up. Uh, some of you may have heard of those kind of churches where the leader is more of a, a showman. You know, he's a showman in the church and the so-called services are, are pure entertainment. Uh, there's loud music, there's flashing lights, there's slick visuals, but it's, it's void of any real kind of gospel content. People don't just love that. They don't just put up, um, put up with it. They actually love it. They lap it up. What's going on in these, these sort of scenarios, these situations that, uh, that I have outlined there? Well, in all of them, all of these examples, the standards and the ways of, of the world are affecting and infecting the Christian church. See, the world says that successful leaders deserve lots of money uh, and they can live a lavish lifestyle. And, and in some think that's okay to import that into the church. Uh, the world says, do whatever it takes to, to, to make you happy, whatever, whatever the, the cost. And we agree, and then we kind of excuse each other's moral failings, and, and we fail to address questionable behavior. And then the media uh, always values appearance, doesn't it? It values appearance and spin over and above character and substance. And so we try and apply that to our churches in, in the name of relevance and in the name of reaching out and, and pithy catchphrases and so on. But St. John's, if, if we apply the world's standards to the church, to God's church, we'll inevitably misjudge what good ministry is and what bad ministry is. And we all have a part to play in this. We can't be passive bystanders in the church. We can't be recipients only. We come together as the body to receive, yes, but we also come to give. And part of that giving is a discerning and a judging, using God's standards, of what is going on in the church. Which is what this, this sort of next bit of 2 Corinthians is all about and what Paul is building. So if you're not uh, building on, um, so if you're not there already, do please um, turn back to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. As you're doing that, let me give you a quick reminder uh, of where we've got to. Um, uh, Paul is in the middle of trying to convince his beloved church that uh, they're being led astray. Uh, and that they're listening to, they're being influenced by uh, false leaders. 
uh, false leaders who are bigging themselves up, uh, but putting Paul down. And Paul has been pretty direct. He's going to go on and become pretty direct. Um, he doesn't just have a go at the leaders, actually. He, he sort of, there's an implied sort of criticism at, at, at the church as well for, for, um, uh, for, for sucking all of this up. He calls them both foolish, really, either directly or indirectly. And by which he means when he calls them foolish, he's, that they're operating according to worldly standards. When actually they should be doing church together in an entirely different, uh, different way, according to Christ's values and according to Christ's example. And we've seen Paul's dilemma, haven't we? He, he needs to defend himself uh, in order to stop the Corinthians being led further away from Jesus. The irony is that in order to protect the church he loves, he realizes that he needs to do the very thing <laughs> that he's criticizing those false leaders of doing. Namely, he need, kind of needs to big himself up to reassert his authority um, and, and, and thereby sort of put the false leaders uh, down. All of which uh, brings us to uh, the first of, of our two um, main headings uh, this morning, looking at cross under this sort of title of cross-shaped leadership. The first heading is this, don't follow leaders who lead by worldly standards. So look down with me at uh, verse 16 of chapter 11. Paul says this, he says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. In other words, he says, don't forget, I'm copying these fools, but please don't think that I'm really operating like them. I'm copying them, but I'm not operating like them. He goes on. Uh, but if you do, oh, I've just lost, lost my place. Here we go. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. In other words, yes, I'm bigging myself up here. You're going to need to see my apostolic credentials again. And then, with this huge slice of sarcasm, it may be uncomfortable to, to hear this, that this is in God's word, Paul says, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Now, if you're uh, even the least bit... Uh, familiar with the uh, the TV sitcom Friends, uh, which seems to have been running endlessly uh, uh, over a quarter of a century on various repeats, and you can you can watch it online and do all sorts of things. Um, and, and you know, indeed, successive generations seem to be uh, intoxicated with that program. Uh, this is where I imagine Paul to be a bit like the, the TV character from Friends, Chandler. Okay, some of you may not know what I'm talking about here, but I'm sure some of you is. Ch- will will Chandler is a is a very sarcastic kind of guy, and it's almost if we were to put this in Chandler speak. That, that, that Paul is saying, look, you put up with idiots. Could you be any more wise? Could you be any more wise? He's so, so sarcastic here. But actually, as he continues, this is far from funny, far from sarcastic sort of territory. Because verse 20 says, in fact, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Barry read that for us earlier. There were, I could sense there was a, a sort of a, a, 
you know, I could sense actually a sharp intake of breath as we heard those words being read. That's the right response. Paul says, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What is Paul getting at here? Well, I think there is a warning and there is a rebuke for us here, all rolled up in one. And I imagine this could be quite painful for some of us to hear this morning. It certainly would have been painful for the Corinthians when they read this letter. Paul is describing the behaviour of the false leaders and he notes five shocking characteristics about it. Here's the first. First is that they enslave. In other words, the leaders demanded total control of the church members. Maybe they insisted on something like personal allegiance. You know, that you must back me up in every scenario. Maybe they wanted unquestioning obedience to whatever they said, uncritical obedience. They were enslaved. It's wrong, that kind of enslaving, that dictatorial approach to leadership. It's manipulative, it's ungodly. Let's be clear, church, true Christian leaders do not exist for you to serve them. We exist to serve you. That is true Christian leadership. It follows Christ's example who said, of course, that he came not to be served, but what? To, be, to, to, to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. So they enslave. Second thing Paul notes is that they exploit. Put it more colloquially, they rip you off. They're out to rip you off. They demand personal recompense and payment for their services. They, they expect to get something back in return. These leaders, these false leaders. But true Christian leaders are not to get rich by exploiting those that they lead. Remember Jesus' instructions to some soldiers? He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Be content with what you have. That's a theme that Paul picks up elsewhere. These false leaders, they enslave, they exploit. Third, they take advantage of others. And it's more than possible that Paul is speaking here of inappropriate sexual behavior. That would certainly pick up on Paul's um, already stated idea that he's trying to keep the church pure. Pure until their, till the, till their wedding day. This is an absolute anathema to Paul. That a Christian leader should take sexual advantage, or any kind of advantage for that matter, on their members through deceitful means, through misrepresentation. They take advantage. What else do they do? They, they, they push themselves forward. It's all about self-promotion with these false leaders, making a name for themselves. I don't know about you, but that's one of the reasons why I'm so nervous today when I hear of Christian ministries and organizations that take the name of, uh, of, of the leader that sort of set them up or, or helped to, to organize them or, to, or that's mainly associated with it. A couple of examples come to mind. The Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, does that not make us think twice about naming things? After someone, you know, he's died but fallen from grace with allegations that have come out about his behavior. Think of Joyce Meyer Ministries. Those are just two examples. But Christian leadership, Paul says, shouldn't be about self-promotion. It's about Jesus' promotion. It's about promoting Jesus. And then finally, in these shocking characteristics, we have to go there because Paul does. But false leaders humiliate others. Literally, Paul says, they slap you in the face. So maybe, shockingly, he does have physical uh, violence and physical abuse in mind. Maybe he's speaking metaphorically. 
whether he is or whether he isn't, any attempt to belittle others, any attempt to, to humiliate them through words, to humiliate them through physical acts, through physical violence and deeds, that's antithetical to real gospel leadership. Paul knows this. He, he writes elsewhere, to, to, for example, in his letters to Timothy and, and to Titus, that, the, that, that one of the characteristics of a Christian leadership that they should not be violent. He's aware of this. So there's the warning against false, false teachers. Five identifying characteristics. Avoid them, Paul says. Have, have nothing to do with them. Don't follow them. But here's the rebuke. There's the warning. Here's the rebuke. Start of verse 20. What does he say? You even put up with it. You even put up with it. It is an utterly tragic state of affairs. And in one sense, Paul doesn't know where to go with it all. Doesn't know what to say. He says, verse 21, uh, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. We were too weak for any of that. Again, there's the sarcasm. But rather than sort of like this, this, this sort of funny, triumphal sarcasm, here, Paul, I think just when you read this, you've got to read this sarcasm in despair and sadness and reflection. There's pain in Paul's words here, given what he's just recounted. Real pain. He's saying there's no way real Christian leaders can do that. I can't believe what's going on. I can't believe you'd be impressed with that. How come you've fallen for that? To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. But of course, we do fall for it, don't we? Occasionally, in devastating ways... And if, as, as Mike mentioned last week, you have suffered at the hands of manipulative uh, and exploitative leaders and you've not worked through that and you've not processed that, then please do speak to somebody you trust. You can come and speak to Mike or myself or if you don't want to speak to us, just do please speak to somebody that you trust about. But it's not just in the devastating ways. I think more often than not... It's not in the extreme ways, it's not in the devastating ways, it's actually in the more subtle ways that we fall for this. For example, we might look at the business world, and we might conclude when we look at the business world that a minister is a bit like a manager. There's truth in that, isn't there? There's truth in that. And then we measure the clergy by their organisational abilities, and we expect them to be professional managers. That is not true. We are not professional managers. Or we might look at education and say that a Christian leader is, is, a, is, is a bit like a teacher. There's truth in that, isn't there? A Christian leader is, is, is a teacher. But then we expect our volunteer leaders to have the same skill set or um, the same training as professional teachers and be able to you know, uh, teach as well and control crowds as well. But that's, that's not true. We shouldn't expect that. Or we think about our music, don't we? And, um, and how, how we want our, long for our music to be God-honoring and to, to encourage each other and build each other up. And then we judge our musicians and our singers by the standards out there, by the professional orchestra or the, the professional band or whatever it is. That's not helpful. Because these are, these are not the same things, the world standards and the church's standards. Now, that does not mean that as a church we shouldn't pursue excellence and do the best that we can because it is our creator God who we are serving, absolutely. 
But we do that. Whenever we do what we do, whether it's leading, managing, teaching, singing, whatever it is, in the body of Christ, we are judging by the Bible standards and not the world's standards. Which leads uh, nicely on to our second main heading today. Firstly, don't follow leaders. Don't follow leaders who lead by worldly standards. Second, do follow leaders whose lives point to the Christ they claim to serve. Do follow leaders whose lives point to the Christ they claim to serve. So so let's read on into uh, verse 21. Paul says this, What anyone else dares to boast about... I am speaking as a fool. He reminds us, you know, I'm mimicking the false ministers here. I'm not operating like them. I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? Right race? So am I, he says. So am I. Are they Israelites? Right religion? Me too, Paul says. So am I. So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? Are they in the right bloodline? Paul says, so am I, me too, I'm there. In other words, they're just the same. They have got nothing on me, these false teachers. I'm just the same as them. But here's the difference. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? And here's the real litmus test. Not just for Christian leaders, but for all Christians. Full stop. Do our lives point to the one that we claim to serve? Do we act like him? Do Christian leaders act like him? Are we motivated by the same concerns as Jesus was? Are Christian leaders motivated by the same concerns as Jesus? Do we follow in his footsteps? Paul says, are they servants of Christ? And then he gives yet another caveat. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He says, I am more. I am more. I have And then what does he say? Now, what I want you to do is to imagine that either you've never heard 2 Corinthians before, or if you you hadn't heard it anyway, but you you heard Barry read it, uh, you hadn't heard Barry read it, okay? So in this backdrop, when we get to this point, Paul says, look, uh, you know, I am am more, I have, you know, I'm bigger than these guys, I have dot, dot, dot. What are we expecting him to say? What are we thinking Paul might come up with next? I have preached more sermons than them probably true i have i have uh, planted more churches than them i've traveled to more places i've seen more conversions than them i i've i've raised more money i've written more books i've trained and equipped more leaders i've had greater influence in the worldwide church than any of them look paul could have said any or one of uh, or all of these things couldn't he they're all true of paul but look at what he says instead he doesn't go there verse 23 i have I've worked much harder, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. For Paul, authentication of his ministry came not from worldly success, but from suffering. That's where his hard work got him, a world of suffering. What a contrast that is. And to drive home the point, he gets more specific. This is where we get the list. Verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So 39 lashes 
were um, a Jewish punishment uh, given out by the Jewish leaders for those people who were in the synagogues uh, who, who were preaching what they deemed to be heresy. So um, th- this is what you would have got if you'd have got in the synagogue and started preaching something that they deemed was false. People were known to die from it. Paul got it five times. What, what, does, that, what does that tell us about where, where Paul's at, about what he's, what he's thinking, what he's doing, what he, what's motivated him? Well, I think it tells us that Paul actually cared so much for the churches that he was trying to establish. He cared so much for the, the people in that area who were spiritually lost that he was willing to go into the synagogue time and time again and preach gospel, good news, and risk a beating and even death. He loved them so much that he was willing to do that. I wonder, do I have the same mindset for the lost? Do you? What are we prepared to suffer? What price are we willing to pay to keep on speaking gospel into our culture? He goes on, three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman punishment. So he's had the Jewish punishment. He has Roman punishment. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And this is actually written before the shipwreck we know about in Acts. So actually he was shipwrecked four times, not three. In one of them he says, I spent a night and day in open sea. Can you imagine that? I mean, we just read over it. This is Paul on wreckage floating around, bobbing around in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from river, rivers. Remember, no, mainly no bridges in those days. So just traveling around, you had to cross all these rivers. In dangers from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in the city, in the country, in the sea, and in danger from, from false brothers. So those that I think are on my team, I'm in danger from them too. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. What, um, or perhaps more accurately, who does this remind you of? Because once we, once we see that, you begin to see the point, I think, of this list. Let me read with, uh, for you from Mark 10 and then Mark 8 to help. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later he will rise. That's Mark 10. Mark 8 Jesus called to the crowd, called them to him, and along with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which is exactly what Paul was doing, actually. He was denying himself any rights to an easy life, anything like that. He was prepared to suffer, to sacrifice, And to serve. 
just as Jesus was on the cross. And God's word says that we are to judge our Christian leaders by how well their lives point to the Christ that they claim to serve. Indeed, we are to judge ourselves and each other by the same criteria. Which means, looking at these, these verses, I think doing at least two things. Looking for cross-shaped lives and listening for admissions of weaknesses. So firstly, looking for crossed, cross-shaped lives. By which I mean to look for leaders who are willing to suffer, leaders who are willing uh, to sacrifice, leaders who are willing to serve, as Jesus was. This is the point of verse 21 through to 29. Paul is flagging up a cross-shaped life. His ministry, if you like, was a long, drawn-out crucifixion. I wonder if you see that in your leaders. I wonder if you see it in yourself. Do you see a willingness to suffer? To suffer opposition? To, uh, to suffer difficulty? Emotional pain? Physical pain? To see Christ glorified? To see his gospel preached? His people looked after? Uh, do you see a sacrificial willingness? Do we see leaders who give up their time? Their sleep? Their money, maybe home, maybe a home country. Leaders who give up a career, leaders who give up reputation. To see Christ glorified, to see his gospel preached, to see people looked after and loved. And do we see a willingness to serve, to love people, to put other people's needs before their own, before our own? That's what drove Paul to all of this. That's why verse 28 actually is, is, is the climax. Let's just have a look at verse 28. He says, besides everything else, other translations say, on top of all this, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak, Paul says. Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn when I see them led into sin? See, unlike the false leaders who were in it for their own ends, Paul cared passionately about his people, about the people in the church, the weak, those who were led into sin. It affected him greatly. He didn't just shrug his shoulders. He didn't just run in the opposite direction like we've been looking at Jonah in our house groups recently. Paul cared passionately. And he saw eternal destinies at stake. And he waded in. No matter what the cost to him, he waded in. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that genuine Christian leaders, be they bishops, vicars, home group leaders, junior church leaders, music group leaders, volunteers, whatever, whoever, we see that genuine Christian leadership points people to Jesus. And they point people to Jesus by their cross-shaped living. And actually, as I keep saying, we should be saying this not just about Christian leaders, but about us as Christian people as well. Period. End of. This applies to all of us. We need to point a dying world 
to the Lord Jesus. And we need to do that by being willing to suffer, to sacrifice and to serve like he did. So we look for cross-shaped lives and then we also need to be able to listen for admissions of weakness. Take a look at how the passage uh, concludes in verse 30. If I must boast, and remember, I'm mimicking them, I'm not operating them like Paul says, you know. But if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through their hands. Now you might think this is a bit odd. Why is this put in here? But just think about it for a minute. Paul is, is recounting what happened at the end of that sort of time in his life that began with his experience on the Damascus Road. So you remember that, right? He went to Damascus, didn't he? He went to Damascus strong. He went to Damascus to root out the Christians, to kill them, to, to, to destroy the church. He went to Damascus as a top Jewish leader. He was, a, he was an up-and-coming star. He was a rising star. Um, uh, you know, a big deal, a man tip for big things. In, in short, he went to Damascus strong, didn't he? And then you remember what happened. He's blinded by the light. He meets Jesus. His life is turned around. He gets led by the hand on that road into Damascus. He gets his sight back when, when Ananias lays hands on him. And then what does he do? He hits the synagogues. He hits the synagogue straight away. He's preaching. Understandably, there's a bit of an uproar. The Jews plot to bump him off. They don't like it. They don't like what he's doing, which results in this most embarrassing of moments. As Paul makes this ignominious withdrawal under the cover of darkness. And he leaves Damascus looking like and no doubt feeling like the world's biggest failure. Like a fugitive. Like a fool. He's come strong. He leaves like a fool in the world's eyes. It is a life-changing and a life-reversing moment. But as he's lowered in that basket, no doubt realising that he's kissed all his own hopes of glory goodbye, in his, you know, his own glory goodbye, perhaps it begins to dawn on him that everything is going to be okay. Because rather than hide... And rather than cover up what he perceived as his weakness, this this really embarrassing moment, he was actually going to need to admit that. And here he is boasting about it (laughs) to the church. He's beginning to realise perhaps that only when he does that, only when he admits his weaknesses, will God's power be made perfect in and through his weak life. So here he is now boasting about perhaps the greatest moment of shame and failure in his life, humanly speaking at least, that he has experienced, knowing that this is exactly what God had planned all along. God had planned it for his glory, God's glory. So how do we respond uh, to, to this? Well, of course, nowhere in Scripture are we told to, to seek out and seek after suffering. We're not told to, to, to go and uh, to, to, to look for it. But we are told to expect it. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. Why did God orchestrate such suffering in Paul's life? Why do you and I, why do we followers of the one true living God have to put up with with times of hardship and trouble? Church, this is what 2 Corinthians is all about. 
It is so that we learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That's 2 Corinthians 1.9. We've been looking at this all the way through. It's so that we can, we can show to each other and we can show to a watching world that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4.7. It's also so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our bodies, 2 Corinthians 4.10. And it's also, as we'll come on to next time, it's so that Christ's power may be made perfect in our weakness. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. So church, judge your leaders. Judge each other. Now, it might make you feel uncomfortable when you hear the preacher stand in the pulpit and say, judge your leaders and judge each other. But I mean that in the discernment sense. No one but God has the right to judge hearts. No one but God has the right to judge eternal salvation and eternal destinies. I mean, judge each other in the sense of discernment. But we do have to judge we do have to look, we have to judge, we have to discern, and then we don't follow leaders who lead by worldly standards. Do, though, look for cross-shaped lives, look for admissions of weakness, and follow those kind of leaders who authentically point to the Christ that they claim to serve and follow. Let's pray. Father, we know that uh, as we've gone through these verses, they are revealing, but they are also challenging. And we confess, Lord, that there are times that we have been influenced more by worldly standards than by your standards and by the standards that are clear to us in your word. And we would ask your forgiveness for those times. I'm also conscious, Lord, that there'll be many of us here some of us here who, who are just bruised and battered by worldly standards in your church. And so, Lord, I ask for your healing and your peace for those of us struggling in that area. Father, I ask that as a church we would, we would be to each other what we need to be, to love and to serve, to sacrifice, to suffer together as we look faithfully to tell a watching world, to tell a lost, a lost world the good news about you. So help us in that, Lord. In all of this we pray. Amen.